chapter 9. Uh, Acts chapter 9. We're going to be looking this morning uh, at the conversion of Saul. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 30. Uh, listen then to the word of God. Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men, were, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And they led him to, by the hand and brought him to Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judah, Judas and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, he sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Those who he, Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of David. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and comforted the Jew, uh, confounded the Jews who, found, who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. And his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. 
So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned of this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Let's open with a word of prayer this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we just want to come into your presence today and we just ask that you would uh, bless us in your word, that your word would would speak to us, that you would have words for for us to hear and that we would uh, delight ourselves in you. We thank you for the privilege of gathering together as the people of God. Nourish us and feed us in your word. In your name we pray. Amen. There's a there's a old hymn uh, that many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with. that talks about the wonderful grace of God. It's the wonderful grace of Jesus greater than all my sins. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall my praise begin? And then it has the, the wonderful chorus. Wonderful, the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling seas, higher than the mountains, sparkling like a fountain, all sufficient grace for even me. And, and when you sing it in parts, you get all the people going up and some are going down. And, and it's just this wonderful melody. But it's a it's a beautiful song that reminds us that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed wonderful. And we're going to talk about how wonderful it is today. And we're going to look at the conversion of Paul. And what we're going to see is that Paul was converted through nothing other than the grace of the Lord Jesus appearing to him. And then what Paul does is obviously he goes on and he becomes a minister of the gospel. He is called not only to follow Jesus, not only to be converted and receive the grace of God, he is called to be an apostle. But the way that Paul was converted shapes his understanding of the grace of God. What we want to ask you this morning is, do I understand the grace of God? On the one hand, I'm asking if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. On the other hand, if you are a believer and have been a Christian for a long time, I want you this morning to think, do I grasp the riches of the grace of God? Maybe I know about the grace of God. I understand that I have grace, but I have not for a while meditated or reflected on just how deep and wonderful God's grace truly is. Nothing compares to the grace of God that saves us. And I want to say, let's return this morning and remember or find out again how wonderful God's grace truly is. You see, most of us, I I would imagine all of us, did not have a Damascus Road experience, either literally or figuratively. We, We were not walking down the street one day, and all of a sudden, a light shines down on us, and and we just, wow, I'm going to believe this. Most of us were not running around, breaking down the doors of the church, dragging people into prison, being that intense of an enemy. But what we're going to see is, spiritually, we all have received the same grace, coming to the same sinner, or type of sinner, who was dead in their sins, receiving the same light of God. Paul is a man who is gripped by the grace of God because when he was converted, God's grace literally gripped him and woke him up. 
And we need to see that God's grace has gripped us and and woken us up from our deadness in our sins. So first this morning, see that God's grace is wonderful because he saves us while we are enemies. God does not come to us while we are good. God comes to us while we are a sinner, while we are walking away from Him, while we were our enemies of God. And nowhere is this more apparent than in the life of Saul. Saul is an enemy of God and God's people. Now, in Philippians chapter 3, we find out Paul is a Pharisee. A Pharisee of the Pharisees. He is... Uh, a good Jewish person. He has kept the law. He has done all the things necessary. He has even what he thinks is a zeal for the Lord. And so these Christians are coming and they are, people are converting and saying that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. This one who died on the cross, who was cursed by God, is our Savior. He is the Son of God. And Paul says, basically, there is only one God. I am a good Jewish person. This is false belief. And he thinks he has this zeal for the Lord. You'll remember at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, the end of Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is being stoned, who's holding the coats of the people who stoned Stephen? Saul is there. And, and Saul is approving this. All right, good. They got this Stephen guy. Way to go. Way to way to nail him. And now he's going to nail other Christians as well. But Saul, still breathing threats of and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. This this is not, you know, I mean, he is worked up. He is angry. He is on fire. And he asked him, the high priest, for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, they might bring them bound to Jerusalem. At this point in in the life of the early church, uh, Jewish Christians, Jewish believers would still gather in the synagogue. And one of the reasons they would still gather in the synagogue is that is where the word of God is read. And so they could begin to evangelize. And there are these people reading the word of God, the Old Testament, and they could tell uh, them that Jesus is the Messiah. And, and you would have groups of Christians that would meet in the synagogue and then meet outside the synagogue. And, and, the, and, and basically the Christians and, and Jews in the synagogue had not yet completely parted ways. So it's natural for Paul to want to go and find and root out in the actual synagogues. We need to find these followers of Jesus. They are blaspheming God and we need to get them and put them to death. You can see just how visceral Paul's reaction is. He is an enemy of God's people actively seeking to destroy the fledgling church. Paul says later on, many years later after his conversion, 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul understood where he had come from and he could look back at his life before he was a Christian and say, I was the worst kind of sinner. 
And we too, as Christians, Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying, which, which means I don't think we're supposed to just say this about Paul. Yep, Paul was the worst sinner. We're supposed to say this about ourselves, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which I too am one of the worst. Think about my sins. You see, when God's grace saves us, we have no qualification for it. There is no reason inside of us that God should give us this grace. Romans 5.10 says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But, while we were enemies. In other words, Romans 5.8, Christ dies for the ungodly. Ephesians chapter 2 describes us before we were a Christian. We were, quote, once all living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. When we did not have the Lord Jesus as our Savior, the Bible tells us that we are dead in our sins. That, that we are bound in captivity to these things. And we are living in, in rebellion against God. Even if we are living the so-called religious life. Even if we consider ourselves, before we know the Lord Jesus, to be spiritual, or even a good moral person. We are deceiving ourselves. Even, even you, you think about the Gospels, and Jesus is hardest on the Pharisees. And, and the Pharisees are the ones that, that grew up going to Sunday school or Sabbath school, right? And, and knowing the Word of God. And they were good moral people. But when they did not accept the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, they showed that they were enemies, that they were bound in their sin. And that is where each one of us comes from. So when we talk about the grace of God, when you think and meditate on the grace of God, and even when you you praise God for His grace, remember who you used to be. Uh, even if you were, were like me, the, the good little boy who grew up in church, I look back and I go, I was a sinner. There were things in my life, maybe even things that I kept hidden that were the worst kinds of sins. I might not have been like Saul trying to, to kill people, but I had stuff in my heart that was wicked. And that's where each one of us comes from. So on the road to Damascus, Paul being an enemy, the Lord appears to Saul. By the way, I keep switching back and forth between calling him Paul and Saul. You know later in his life, he gets called Paul when he goes to the Greeks. And we're used to reading you know, from the Apostle Paul, the book of Romans or the book of Corinthians. Same, same guy. Here he's Saul. He's going by his Jewish name. And, and I just keep flip-flopping without, without thinking. So don't get confused. I'm not talking about two different people, um, Saul or Paul. Look at, look at verse 3 to 6. Now when, when he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? 
And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city and, and you will be told what you are to do. The, the Lord Jesus Christ appears to Saul. And, and the heavens open up and the glory of God just radiates down onto Saul. I, I mean, it's just the brightest of spotlights. If you've ever stuck your head in front of a, like a, a bright light and you start to see spots, I mean, this is even brighter than that. This is the glory of God. And, and the amazing thing is who Paul sees standing there as he's looking up into heaven is the resurrected bodily appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how it worked, but I imagine some sort of like, I'm a sci-fi fan, so in my imagination, you know, an ulti- another dimension opens up. But whatever it was, there's this blinding light and, and Saul is seeing right up into heaven and there is right where God should be. And Saul knows his Old Testament and he knows how Isaiah saw the glory of God in the throne and all of these things. And right where he's looking, he sees Jesus Christ. And he falls down. And this is what people do in the Old Testament when they, when they see God, when they see his glory or his presence in some way. Uh, uh, Genesis chapter 17, when, when God speaks to Abraham, it says that Abraham fell down. Uh, Joshua chapter 5, the angel of the Lord appears to Joshua, the captain of the Lord's army, and Joshua falls down. Saul is falling down because he knows he is seeing the glory of God. Uh, another great example, Ezekiel chapter one twenty-eight. This is when Ezekiel, the heavens open up and he sees the throne room. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Revelation 1.17, when the Lord appears to John, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And at his right hand, he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. This is the overwhelming call of God as Saul sees the glory of God on the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees the radiance of God's glory radiated out through the One who is the eternal Son of God. And Saul says, Lord, who are You? Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So Saul, I think here, is using uh, the divine name, Lord, who are you? And Jesus says, I am Jesus. This one, this Messiah, who you're trying to stomp out my followers. And this transforms Paul. He is saved. He believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice this morning three things how this shapes Paul's understanding of God's grace. Paul's theology and then Paul's ministry. And this, this is where we make the connections to our life and, and what it means for us 
that we were saved by the grace of God. First, conversion is God's light, God shining His light into our hearts. Now for Paul, this happens very literally. I mean, boom! God opens up the heaven. The glory is there. But for Paul, his understanding of every sinner's conversion is that in some way, God opens our heart and shines light into our hearts, at least spiritually speaking. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul describes us as as when we hear the Word of God, our, our minds are hardened. And he says of, of the unbeliever, to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. But we all, 2 Corinthians 3.18, with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in the case of the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. 1 Corinthians 4.6 For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God on the face of Christ. So, what happens to Saul? He is an enemy. His heart is blinded. He's reading the Word of God. He doesn't accept it. He's walking on the road to Damascus. God opens his eyes quite literally. And he is saved. And Paul says to us, Saul says to us, what happens when we're saved? Before we're saved, the God of this age, compounded with my own sins, the God of this age blinds us, keeps us in unbelief so that we cannot see. But when the Gospel is preached, when someone shares the Word of God, the Holy Spirit can miraculously and does call that sinner so it is just like when God in, in the first creation said, let there be light, and all of a sudden there's light in all of creation. God calls into that person's heart saying, let there be light. And He shines that light into their hearts and we suddenly, who are hearing the Gospel, we turn and believe these things. Why? Because God is the one regenerating us. God is the one opening our eyes. If the grace of God does not come to us, we don't see these things. We are dead in our sins. We are bound. We are rebelling against God and we like it. But God, praise Him, He opens the heart. Why are you a Christian? Because God opened your heart. And you believed. And you saw who Jesus was. Maybe not literally, but, but you heard the Word and someone was telling you that Jesus died on the cross and that, that, that He is the Son of God and, and suddenly you realized you needed Him as a Savior. It's because God opened your heart. That's what grace means. Second, the believer is in close union with Jesus Christ. Notice this. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
Now ask yourself this. When did Saul ever lay a hand on Jesus? He never touched Jesus. So far as we know, he never met Jesus. He never knew Jesus. But to touch one of the believers is to persecute Jesus Christ. That there is such a deep spiritual union, a connection between Christ and His children that that what Saul is doing to Jesus' children, the believers, the disciples, it's exactly if Jesus had received it. It's exactly as if Saul had done it to Jesus. In the same way, the union flows in the other direction. The death and resurrection that Jesus suffered is applied to me. Paul later on in Romans chapter 6 will describe the believer as being baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I really believe that that some of these aspects of Paul's understanding and theology, I mean, it flowed out of his understanding when Jesus opened his eyes on the road to Damascus. Now, I believe the Holy Spirit inspired him and he wrote books later on and he grew in his understanding of the word of God. But you can see the seed here of this idea of being in Christ, as Paul refers to it many times in the epistles. It's kind of like a marriage relationship. I was looking back through, um, we have a, a little order of service for a wedding, the things that I, I better not forget to say, like, you know, you may kiss the bride, you're, you're now husband and wife. And, and I was looking through what, what the, the general instructions are to say, and usually somewhere in the pronouncement of marriage we say this, in this new relationship, let me remind you, that you are one in interests, one in reputation, and above all, one in affection. And therefore, whom God has joined together, let no man push asunder, meaning tear apart. When we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are so in Christ, in union with Him, in spiritual communion with Him, that we are one in interest, that we are one in reputation. That what Saul was doing to the believers, he was doing to Jesus. That is how close, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is how close your union and your connection is to Jesus himself. And then third, we see Saul acknowledges that Jesus is Lord, the Son of God. And this will be something he proclaims over and over again. Look at verse 5. Who are you, Lord? Then later on in verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. He is saying, he is the son of God. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, Paul says, but when he who set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace. This is the road to Damascus. And Paul uses this language of the Christian that we are called by the grace of God. He says, who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Saul saw a revelation of Jesus and he knew and understood from that moment that Jesus is the son of God. That all of the glory that God the Father has is all of the glory that the Son was radiating out in that moment. 
so that while we have um, three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship one glorious, majestic God who is one being. And the fact that Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father, sits down at the right hand of the Father, is at the very throne of God in heaven, shows us that He is equal with the Father in power and glory. The book of Isaiah says in two places, I will not give my glory to another. And so, Jesus Christ having and radiating out the very glory of God says to us, when we say, when the Bible says He is the Son of God, we mean that He is truly God from all eternity past. There are two persons, and in their relationships, they are Father and Son. But there is one God. There's also the third person, the Holy Spirit, but you understand that. I want you to see this morning that the power and the sovereignty of the grace of God is wonderful. God has worked in each one of us to draw us to saving grace. I love the hymn by Charles Wesley, uh, And Can It Be? And, and if you ever sing that hymn, you have to sing all three verses, or all four verses. If you skip any verses, uh, I will be very upset with you when you're singing it. Because there's this progression that goes through the verses. And, and the third verse, which is one of my favorites, which when people skip verses, they usually do like the fourth, first and the fourth. So the third one gets skipped. But, but listen to the, the third verse. And it's describing our conversion. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Lots of people believe that salvation is by the grace of God. But we believe, and the Scriptures teach, that salvation is by grace alone. That only God's grace can save the sinner. That I have nothing that I bring before God. That God opens my eyes. That the, the darkness and the dungeon flames with light and then I go forth and follow God. But He is the one who works in me. You know this to be true. You were a sinner. And one day you heard the gospel or someone shared the gospel or you read something from Scripture and in your heart you understood it where you had not before. What changed? Were you suddenly smarter? Were you suddenly more intelligent? Did you finally get your own act together? No. God opened your eyes. He revealed it to you. Peter, in Matthew chapter 16, confesses that Jesus is the Son of the living God. And what does Jesus say? Wow, Peter, you're the smartest disciple ever. No. He says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. God opens the eyes. 
The second thing I want us to see this morning is that God's grace is wonderful because he chooses us to be his instruments. So not only are we chosen to salvation and receive this saving grace, but part of receiving the grace of God is he then shapes us to be instruments, to be servants, to go out and do what the Lord would have us do. So we see this as we're going through. God then prepares Ananias to meet Saul. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am. You can think of the Old Testament, all the various servants who hear from God and they respond readily, here I am, Lord. Verse 11, and the Lord said to him, rise up and go to a street called Straight. Uh, I don't know where this street is in Damascus, but it was a very real street and Ananias would have known where it was. And at the house of Judas, look for a man named of, of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying and he has seen a vision in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. Now, Ananias is more than just a little worried here. Uh, he's like, God, do you know who this Saul guy is? I've heard a few things about him. It might not be safe for me to go over to his house. So he says this, Lord, I've heard for many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. So Saul had a reputation. People knew what he was doing. They knew he was a troublemaker. Christians knew, don't let Saul catch you. Uh, verse 14, and he was here on the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. What does the Lord say? The Lord says that Saul is going to be used to spread the gospel. Look at 15 and 16. For the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. There's a lot of times Paul reflects on this. One verse that this might have an echo of is Isaiah 49.6. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation might reach the ends of the earth. The first fulfillment of Isaiah 49 is Jesus. But I think there's an application that extends to Paul. Paul is that disciple, that apostle that goes to all the nations. He particularly goes to the Gentiles. Paul says in Romans 1.1 that he was, quote, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Galatians 1.15, when he who set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. Or Ephesians 3.7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. God's gracious gift did two things to Saul, and they're really intertwined. One, it saved him. And two, it made him a servant, a chosen instrument. Now, for Saul, that meant he was particularly an apostle. And he's going to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And, and you, can almost, you can almost sense that you know, here is Saul who has been causing the suffering, persecuting Jesus. And, Saul, and God says, I'm going to show him what it means to suffer for my name. And this isn't God getting revenge or being mean or Saul having to work off some sort of debt. It's I'm going to show him what it means to be a chosen instrument, 
to have the grace of God in my life, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ by walking through this path of earthly suffering. Like the prophet Jeremiah, God had known who Saul was before the foundations of the world. Jeremiah says, before I, or God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. And I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Paul says, when I was set apart before I was born, God had called me. And God called me, or at least God called me at this time, to be this instrument. We go on in the passage and we, we begin to see God fulfilling His Word. Saul becomes this powerful evangelist and he is proclaiming in the synagogues. And what happens in Damascus, they are, are waiting by the city gates to, to try to kill him. Uh, meaning, they blocked all the entrances. They were, they were sitting there and there was only these ways out of town and they were going to jump upon him and seize him and, and kill him as he leaves town. Uh, it, it would be like the cops blocking Route 30 and Route 83 and setting up and waiting for the criminal to take the main road out. They're going to snatch him and kill him. Paul is begi- Saul is beginning to suffer for the name. And of course, uh, his disciples, those who are with him, lower him down over the city in some kind of basket, uh, and he escapes in the night. But then the same thing happens. He is in Jerusalem, and, and he is sharing the gospel, and, and Barnabas takes him to meet the disciples, and they approve, and they, they marvel at the grace of God. And then it says uh, in verse 23, And in many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Oh, wait, no, we already went through that one. Verse 28, So when he went out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed with the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned of this, uh, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. How would you like that? You are such a good evangelist. You are such a good Sunday school teacher or Bible preacher that, that everybody's trying to kill you. Um, I hope that I don't have to, you know, sneak out the side door because you're you're waiting to to jump me on the way out. But this is the work of God's grace. God is making him a chosen instrument. I want you to see then that Ananias goes down and he acknowledges Saul as a brother. Verses 17 to 19. So Ananias departed and entered the house, laying on his, his hands on him. He said, brother Saul. And, and, and notice that. Brother Saul, this guy who went from persecuting the church, Ananias doesn't just keep him at arm's length and say, well, you know, we'll see what happens here. God told me to do this. No, he comes in, Brother Saul. That should be a reminder to us inside the church. No matter where people come from, no matter what their background, no matter what sins they have in their past, we can welcome them and call them brothers and sisters. Sometimes what happens in in the church is we have the people that have grown up in the church or been in the church a long time, and someone new comes, and someone who's recently saved comes, and we say, well, we're pretty good Christians. We need to wait and see if you're a good Christian. The grace of God transforms, and we should treat people as those who have received the grace of God. Brother Saul, 
The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's a little bit of irony here. Saul was blind in his sin and then seeing God makes him blind physically for three days. And when Ananias lays hands on him, his eyes open. It says he rose and he was baptized. And then he had apparently been fasting for a few days. He takes the food and he's strengthened. But Saul is, by the grace of God, a chosen instrument. I want you to think about this. We are chosen by God's grace. And the same grace that calls us shapes us to be an instrument. That same grace that calls you, that saved you, that, that opened your eyes, shapes you to be a servant. Every believer has a spiritual gift that they can use. Every believer is shaped to be an instrument. I want you to think about this. Ask yourself this. Why does God save me? Why does he make me this instrument united to Jesus Christ? He doesn't do it because of who I am or who I was. He does it by his grace alone. I've got nothing in me that should make God want me on his team, that should make God choose me to be his servants. I think I've I've said this before, but God did not before the foundations of the world, look down through time and say, that Tim Bertolette is going to be a really good guy and I really want him to be a pastor for me. That Tim Bertolette was a horrible sinner. And God chose me and gave me spiritual gifts. And God chose you and gave you spiritual gifts. Let me ask three things this morning. What is the basis of God's choosing? Why does He give grace There's nothing in and of ourselves. The grace of God is completely unmerited. It is solely the plan and purpose of God to open hearts and open eyes as the gospel is preached. Romans chapter 9, 11, speaking of Jacob and Esau before the two children were born in the womb, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. God had set one of them apart. Jacob I love because He was going to call him to grace and open his eyes. We are chosen by the unmerited grace of God. Romans 11.5 says, At the present time there is a remnant unto salvation, Chosen by grace. For if it is by grace, it is not on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If I could do anything to contribute to the working of God, if I had anything in me that that God took into account or weighed out and said, wow, that means something, then grace wouldn't be grace. It is a free gift that God gives to His people as He opens their eyes. Second question, what is the time of God's choosing? Saul says that he was set apart before he was born. Jeremiah is told, I knew you before you were in the womb. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says, 
even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us as the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ. Romans 8.30 And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. God works to call the sinner because he has a plan that he had even before you were born. Even before he created the world, he knew you. And he knew that there would be a time where he would shine this grace into your life and you would respond through faith and belief. This is how wonderful the grace of God is that he has planned it out before the foundations of the world. It extends through all eternity past that even while we are children of wrath when we are born in our sin and living it out, God had even before that a plan that at just the right time He would open our eyes, He would show us His grace, and we would receive it. That is the wonder of the grace of God. I can't comprehend it. I can't even remember what I had for lunch three days ago. I can't remember everything that happens in the... I am bound by time, and, I, and even then I can't remember all that I've experienced. And God is so far beyond that. He is eternal, and this wondrous grace is part of His eternal plan. What is the end or the purpose of God choosing me? Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Philippians 1.29 For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. So there, the, the plan of God is that it's been given to us the, the gift that we should believe, but also that we should bear His name and at times suffer for Him. Just like it was said of Saul, I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. That we carry the name of Jesus into the world fulfilling these works that He planned and prepared for us beforehand. And we become His instruments. And when you look back at your life, you're going to see that you are either a good instrument or a not-so-good instrument. But you're going to give all the credit to God the good instrument, the one who's been used by God, who has experienced the grace of God, does not look back at the end of their lives and say, I was pretty smart. I was pretty good. I was pretty nice. I accomplished a lot. The sinner at the end of their life looks back, or the saved sinner looks back and says, it was only the grace of God in me. That's how Paul looks back in the end of his life in the pastoral epistles. Saul not only experienced the grace of God, but the manner of his conversion made him perfectly attuned to see what the saving grace of God was. This radical opening of the eyes, transforming of the person, making us a new creation so that we might go out and serve him. So I ask you, do you understand? 
do you remember just how wonderful the grace of God is? Scripture says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That I have nothing that I can pat myself on the back for. The grace of God. Wonderful grace of Jesus. Greater than all my sins. Higher than the mountain. Sparkling like a fountain. All sufficient grace for even me. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would bless your word, that we would have a sense of your grace, just a joy about it, just a a delight, that maybe we see our sins in a new way. We just remind ourselves, yeah, I really was that bad, but you really were that good. Grace is not a, a partnership between you and me. It is something that you have done, Father. We just praise you for that. We thank you for the salvation. May, may the riches of the salvation make us be more evangelistic, just as Paul was, was bold to share the truth, to talk to other peoples, to invite them to believe, knowing that you would work. May we also have that same joy and passion. In your precious name we pray. Amen.